This is the Retail Politics Podcast. Here we strive to give you the best political information about your nation. One download at a time. Here's your host, former congressional correspondent and award-winning reporter, Jerry Shields. Thank you for once again spending 30 minutes of your precious time with us as today we discuss the politics of Bob Dole. Dole served as the leader of the U.S. Senate in the 1990s and ran unsuccessfully for president three times and died last month at 98. The Kansas lawyer and World War II war hero served in Congress for 35 years and came across as a gruff, tough-talking congressional curmudgeon. But was he? Our guest today is Mark Zwanitzer, an author and documentary filmmaker who also served as the chief researcher for the epic 1993 nonfiction book, What It Takes, The Road to the White House, by Richard Ben Kramer, who extensively covered Dole's life. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Jerry. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on. So we, we were talking about Bob Dole. A lot of people came off, uh, he came off to a lot of people as kind of a curmudgeon, kind of grim and talk like this very gruff guy. And um, was he, was he, a, was he, a, you know, kind of a, a tough guy? Well, outwardly, he, he was a bit like that. And uh, his voice was interesting. It was sort of one of these voices made to cut through the winds of the Western Kansas Plains, uh, which which he did pretty well, <laughs> which is where he was from. Yeah, that's exactly. right. Yeah. And uh, he yeah, was, yeah. Uh, yeah, he had a very tough outer shell. You know, part of it was the way he came up. Part of it was his uh, very difficult war experiences. But he uh, he was had a really kind of soft core inside, and um, he was a guy who. It was interesting. You talk to people who work for him. He he never said thank you. He never said I'm sorry. He never said that directly. But huh. he would find ways if he if he knew he had to apologize to you. He he'd never actually say thank you. He'd just come over and sort of make nice, you know. Um, right. And and that was dull, tough on the outside, and and almost uh, a softy in on the interior. That's a great that's a great uh, observation because I got to cover him in uh, in the 1996 campaign when he ran against Bill Clinton when he would come into Florida I just go on the campaign and I found him to be very witty and very personable and do you think he was I, I thought he wasn't able to get that across in the debates and on the commercials and the ads um, do you think that was kind of his downfall Well I know that he was um he was a he was possessed of a great sense of humor from from the time he was a kid uh uh running a, a the soda jerk stand in the uh in the Dawson drugstore in, in Russell and that never left him he was a very very funny guy the problem was occasionally and especially when he was reacting to someone who was coming after him his humor could get very um very bitter and sound mean-spirited and in general it was not that it was it was usually pretty self-deprecating but he was not he was a great legislator and maybe not a great campaigner I remember when his wife, Elizabeth Dole, who ran for president herself, uh, she was named, I think, transportation secretary. And in his speech, he says, I only have one wife to give. <laughs> so it was yeah. it was that witty side yeah. of him. Yeah. Um, that was great. You did a lot of research on him. Richard um, ended up writing, uh, using a second book and some of his material to write a second book on Dole. What was it that surprised you the most as you as you kind of learned about him? 
Well, um, I, uh, you know, one of the things that surprised me the most is, is actually a physical thing about him. You know, he, um, he was badly injured in the, in the war and he lost the use of his right arm, which was always sort of crooked up in front of him. He had a pen in it all the time. Uh And you would think that, oh, it was somehow fused in that in that bent position. But the truth is, if he just let it go, it would hang down at his side, which kind of looked like it almost made him look like an invalid or something. So by dent of effort, 24 hours a day, he held that arm up. Uh, to make sure, you know, it didn't look funny. It didn't look strange. And it was a, it was a huge effort. And that sort of um, exemplifies Dole. You know, there are things about him you don't know. And one of the things is that his entire life, I mean, 24 hours a day was effort. And uh, that was the thing that both surprised me that I learned about him, but also uh, I found most impressive about him. And the book, What It Takes, is a thousand pages. Richard did an amazing job. And I, I think, uh, you know, when it initially came out, people weren't real thrilled. But I think it's considered the political book um, of our time. And then one scene that really stood out for me uh, was when Dole came back from the war and his, he lost the use of his arm. Um, but his mother went into the garage and saw him. I think he was hanging from the ceiling trying to restore that. Tell us that story. Yeah, he, um, well, first of all, let me say that uh, Bob Dole didn't set out to be a a war hero. Uh, He was really hoping that he could avoid, um, avoid service. But, you know, once he was thrown in, and he was thrown into the most dangerous possible position, he was a replacement lieutenant, which means he was a, uh, a platoon leader out front of a small platoon of 30 guys. In the uh, and he was injured badly in in Italy when he when he jumped out to uh, pull his radio man back into a foxhole. So you know he he wasn't he was an accidental hero in some ways, but uh, he was badly injured. Uh, he barely survived that injury, but he um, you know his dream growing up was to go and play basketball at the University of Kansas for the famous Fog Allen. And then to uh, to get a do- to get his medical degree, he wanted to become a doctor. And even as bad as those injuries were, he had this dream that he could somehow get himself back. And that um, you know what his mom witnessed in the in the uh, garage that day was just another you know it was it's him trying to do his own personal physical rehabilitation. At some point, he he realized, and a doctor who help put him back together. Dr. Kalikian said, you know, Bob, you're going to have to make, make peace with, uh, with what you, with what you do have. And, um, and you're never going to be the same and your dreams are never going to, you know, the dreams you had are never going to come true, but it's, it's sort of time to get new dreams. And, uh, and that's what he ended up doing. And we talk about that gruff exterior and some reporters called him the Darth Vader of Congress, but you mentioned effort. And one of the things he used that effort for, he was the consummate deal maker. And although he was a staunch conservative, some of the, some of the support that he gave was, was really um, kind of for people. I mean, for the, for the needy, uh, he was instrumental in the farm act of i think it was 73 when food stamps were created so um that that has been probably one of the the, you know the great um 
deliverers of need for our government. Um, he also helped to pass the law that created MLK, the Martin Luther King holiday. He was very big on affirmative actions. And what do you, what do you think that dichotomy is to be a conservative and then to do um, those kinds of things? Well, I think that, um, you know, because Dole had both his experience growing up in the Depression and his experience in the war taught him that, you know, you can have really bad things go against you <laughs> through no fault of your own. And uh, he did believe that, uh, you know, government was there to help people. Um, he didn't believe, as Reagan famously said, you know, government is not the solution. Government is the problem. Dole really did believe that you know, what's the point of being in the government if you can't help people? So he worked on that farm bill, for instance, to, um, to establish the, the, uh, some of those food programs. He worked very closely with George McGovern. They became very good friends. Uh, there are people who told me that at, in the wake of the 76 election, when Dole was running for vice president with Ford, that afterwards McGovern called him and said, you know, I voted for you, Bob. Now, I suspect that's not. I suspect that's an apocryphal story, but uh, but the truth is, uh, but the truth is, he did he did work across the aisle. He did work very hard on the Americans for Dis- uh, with Dis- Disabilities Act, um, you know, because of his own experience with that. And he um, he was now to be honest, he was a he was a partisan guy. I mean, he was a Republican through and through. He was still you know, defending and supporting Donald Trump right to the end. But there were certain places he he wouldn't go. Um, one of them was uh, he didn't buy into the crazy economic theories of the uh, of Milton Friedman and Reagan and the supply siders, you know. He just didn't believe in trickle-down theory. He once said famously, you know, there, uh, there's some some bad news and some worse news. The bad news is a bus full of supply siders went off a cliff. Uh, the worst news is that three seats were empty. <laughs> and, and he also once said of his own vice presidential uh, nominee, Jack Kemp, uh, years earlier, you know, uh, when Kemp was trying to get big tax cuts through, you know, uh, I think Kemp's waiting to get a tax uh, deduction on his hairspray. <laughs> so, so he, you know, he, he could be very funny and cutting it. And on economic issues, he was more in the center. What I think separated him in some other ways from what you see today in the very partisan um, Republican Party is that Dole never used race or uh, religion as, as wedge issues. Now, part of that was that, you know, he was running in Kansas where, the, where it's about 92% white. And so he didn't have to, uh, you know, he, he didn't have to use that. But even as a national candidate, he was, um, you know, he was very careful not to use the issues of race and, and religion. I just don't think he believed they had a proper place in, in our politics. And so it's hard to say where he would come today, where, you know, in that the, the current Republican Party looks like they're interested in doing nothing but using race and religion as, as, as wedge issues. Yeah, and so yeah. I, I can't honestly say where he, would, where he would come down on that, but I, but I like to think he would be, um, 
a little more careful than most folks are today. And one of the interesting things, too, was that he supported Richard Nixon very staunchly. He defended Nixon. And you were mentioning Donald Trump and how he was with Trump through the whole thing. Was that a sign of just his loyalty to the Republican Party? Well, part of it was his loyalty to the, to the party. But he also, I mean, he was a big fan of Richard Nixon. I mean, this, this is pre-Watergate, right? He was very impressed by Richard Nixon. Nixon was a guy like him who really came from nothing. And Nixon was a guy like him who lived for politics. Dole used to talk about how Nixon could fly across the country in a plane and look down over the over the country and he could he could point out a county and he could tell you who was the county chairman there and who were the important people to know there. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. Dole really had mm-hmm. great respect and admiration for Nixon as a as a as a politician. Um but uh, and right. and in fact, you talk about you know where Dole was partisan. Uh, Dole was the Republican uh, national chairman uh, under Nixon for a few years, and there were times when even the Nixon would people right. people would say, "Oh, hey, you know, Bob, you gotta like you gotta back off a little bit. You're being a little too partisan." <laughs> but, <laughs> well, that's where he got the term hatchet man. Yeah, right? exactly. I mean, yeah. He, he was called the hatchet yeah, man. Yeah, coming up in uh, in the in the beginning. And, of, yeah, um, Saxby said this guy couldn't sell beer on a troop ship. <laughs> <laughs> and even with Trump, he he was with Trump. Uh, he went to the convention uh, when when Trump was uh, nominated, but he cut him off after the 2020 claims that the election was stolen. And uh, that seemed almost like you were saying, how far would he go? And he wouldn't go that far. No, but he I tell you, he went he went a long ways, though. You know, he, he went he went a long ways because he was. He was always loyal to the Republican Party, and it's it's funny about that because he um, the way he repu- became the Republican. The story he always told was that he became a Republican because when um, when uh, he was a young uh, attorney in Russell, they came to him and asked him to run for a county attorney. The Democratic Party chair came and asked him to run, and the Republican Party chairman came and asked him to run. And Dole said he decided to run as a Republican. And when asked why, he said, because I can count. There were a lot more Republicans in, Rus- in Russell than, uh, than Democrats. <laughs> but, but once he was on and the it's team. It's interesting because his father, his father was a Democrat. Yeah, they, his, yeah. yeah his, his parents were real uh, you know, New Dealers, real Roosevelt Democrats. I was just say, you know, once, once Bob Dole was on the team, he was going to uh, give you his entire effort. Yeah, and we were talking about the food stamps issue, and and you mentioned him as county attorney in Kansas, and someone had said he remembered signing checks, and it was right after the New Deal. He remembered signing, you know, support checks for people who were in need, and I think his grandparents were on there, so that's kind of where he got that soft um, soft spot for the uh, for the needy. And it was interesting. I saw this uh, one picture uh, of uh, Bob Dole at George. H.W. Bush's casket, and it was very gripping. He was in his wheelchair. He's standing next to the, he's sitting next to the casket, um, and George Bush is in lying and state in the U.S. Capitol. And of course, Bush was a veteran and a war hero, and he was saluting him. And I thought, God, that's got to be so scary. You know, here's one of your contemporaries uh, lying before you, and you're not too far away from it. But what was his relationship with Bush? Bush also ran in that 1988 election that Richard covered, and he won it. Um, what were their, What was their relationship? 
well, so yeah, let me back up to the, I'll talk about the 88 first. And, and um, it was really a, uh, I mean, it was a, it was a real rivalry. It was like a Duke, North Carolina. It was like, a, you know, Florida State, Miami. It was a Kansas, Missouri. I mean, they were at each other's throats. And, and Dole was always the underdog. Remember, Bush was the vice president uh, at the time. And he had all those yes. sort of institutional yes. prerogatives that come along with it, including he was, uh, he was on Air Force Two all the time. So every time they'd go into the same airport for a debate or something, Dole's plane always had to wait for Bush's plane to take off, for Air Force Two to go. And he would sit on the tarmac. He was really upset also because Air Force Two had, you know, you could basically work in there. It had an entire team full of, you know, yes, a staff yes, yes, in there. Yes, and, yes. And, and so Dole would sit on the tarmac and sort of grouse saying, Look, uh, there they go, Air Force Two, typing, flying around. Uh, and so the rivalry was yes, intense, yes, yes. and and there was a moment it looked like the underdog Dole was going to overtake him. He he won in Iowa. Bush was third, and they went into New Hampshire, and it looked like if um, if Dole was going to win, if Dole won New Hampshire, it would really put the uh, the nail in Bush's coffin. And uh, it was a very close race, and Bush ended up winning that. Uh, unexpectedly winning that uh, primary and going on to win the nomination. But I remember a couple years later while working on the book in about 1989 or so, we went to talk to Richard and I went to talk to Dole in his office around Christmas time. He was in one of his Christmas sweaters and very relaxed. Um, And he was talking about that week in New Hampshire when he remembered um, Bush he was Bush was out there tossing footballs around and he was running heavy machinery and he was getting all these great photo ops. And I remember Dole saying almost an aside, you know, you know, it was the one time it was the only time in my life that I really sort of regretted not being whole. In other words, not being as physically able, not being able to do those things Bush was yes. was doing. And it was yes. really a. Uh, I mean, it was one of those moments that just knocks you back. I'll never, I'll never forget that because he never talked about it publicly. He would never talk about it, you know, previously or after he never did. But um, that was a big moment for him. But over time, they came to have great, um, not only respect, but affection for each other. And what I remember about that moment at Bush's casket at his funeral is that, you know, Dole didn't just salute just didn't just salute George Herbert Walker Bush, but uh, he actually made sure he could stand. He was helped into a standing position out of his wheelchair to be able to do yes, that. Yes, that's right. And it that's was right. a, yeah, that's right. it was quite, it was, you know, it does speak to the fact that, you know, this Dole, who was a very, you know, tough exterior guy is a kind of a softy underneath. I mean, he, he, he actually had to be careful. He could dro- cry at the drop of a hat, you know, every time he went back to Russell and, Thank people. Yeah. Well, he cried that he, yes, he, 
Yeah, he cried at uh, Nixon's eulogy. He gave Nixon's eulogy, uh, other eulogy of Nixon, and cried at yeah. the end, um, yeah. <laughs> which uh, was very well remembered. Very well remembered. And I, you know, I wouldn't put it past Bush during those campaign times to have done that intentionally to show that visit that physical rigor, knowing that Dole couldn't. Do you think that might have been intentional? I mean, I can't say it was intentional. I don't know that for a fact, but I will say this that. Um, one of the things about George Herbert Walker Bush that is very overlooked is that he was an incredibly competitive guy. I mean, he, you know, when it came to politics, oh, yeah. especially, he was he he wanted to be a winner, and he was going to do, you know, as the title of the book was, he was going to do what it takes and whatever it takes. And so, I wouldn't be at all surprised if, uh, you know, folks around him were su- suggesting you can do this and this and this that he thought that was a pretty good idea. So um, I don't think he did it in any mean-spirited way, but um, yeah, in a competitive way, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if that was a, a strategy and a tactic. And you were talking about, we were talking about uh, Bob Dole being in a wheelchair. And one of the things that really, um, you know, stirred me was I was down at the World War II monument um, one time covering something, and he would go down there every Saturday, Saturday even into his 90s, and he would be in his wheelchair, and he would greet every veteran coming off the buses to, to visit the memorial. And he just loved that. He would salute them. And it was just, again, it's that, that softy side of him that, um, that kind of, okay, it was very, very stirring. And let's talk about the book. Sure. You gotta, we got to talk about our pal Richard Kraber. What was it like to work with him? Well, I mean, it was, it was uh, a pleasure and a joy. We worked together not only on that book, for, uh, but for uh, the next uh, 20 years after that. Uh, and uh, Richard was, you know, the best reporter I ever knew. He was um, a spectacular writer. I think uh, anybody who picks up and reads the profile of Bob Dole and what it takes will, will understand that. And he was just a great, he was just a great friend and a great person to be around. And, uh, and I don't think there's anybody else on the planet that could have pulled off the book, What It Takes. It was amazing. I mean, you had Gary Hart in that race. You had Bush. You had Dole. I mean, there, I think there was about eight people in that race, and he covered them all. He got them well, all. And uh, it was funny. I ran into Dole. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, we, we ended up covering six of them, so we did a lot. Yeah. Six of them, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I remember running into Dole in Orlando, and we were walking down the hall, and I said, uh, hey, Senator, did you read that book, What It Takes? What did you think of it? And he said, that guy spent more time in my hometown than I did, <laughs> which I thought was a great tribute to, to Richard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I worked at the Inquirer. I came, go ahead. Yeah, and you knew Richard, right? Yes, yes, yes. I worked with him in Philly. Um, I came out of I came out of college and I was a clerk. I was just running newspapers, getting coffee, whatever they told me to do. But Richard had just come back from the Middle East, where he won the Pulitzer Prize for uh, his coverage of the Middle East crisis. And fortunately, they sat him right next to me, so he didn't have a, a whole lot to do, and he kind of took me under his wing. But I remember this great night where I'm leaving, and uh, I turned about eight o'clock at night, and I turned. I said, "Good night, Richard. See you tomorrow." And he said, "Okay." So. Next day I come in, he's still sitting there in the same clothes. He's got a stack of books. He's got empty styrofoam coffee cups all over the place. And uh, I said to him, Richard, didn't you not? Didn't you go home last night? And he said, No, I've been writing all night. And I said, What the hell are you writing? He said, I'm writing Menachem Begin's Obed. And I had known Begin was still alive. And I said, Well, did he die? She says, No, but he's going to. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I just love that. And you you had mentioned um, that uh, in the DiMaggio book too. So I saw him down in Miami, and uh, we I took him to the Hard Rock. It was just a, a wonderful opportunity for me to buy my hero lunch. You know, yeah. like I, I was able to at that time. And I said to him, um, "Hey, Richard, what's your next project?" And he said, "I'm going to do a book on Joe DiMaggio." I said, Richard, Joe DiMaggio doesn't talk to anybody. And he said, sounds like a good book. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the way he was. Well, he, 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 he always uh, wanted the toughest nut to crack, you know? Yes. That's true. Let me, I'll tell you a couple things about like Richard's method and why he was so good, I think. And one of them speaks to, uh, you know, uh, Russell, Kansas, because, uh, you know, did Richard spend as much time in Russell as Dole? Probably not. But... By the time Richard, you know, was back there the third and fourth time, he was practically another member of the Dole family. I mean, Kenny Dole and Norma Jean mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, Gloria, his his brothers and sisters, you know, knew Richard like their best pal, and um, and that, you know, he he got himself into people's lives, and we still have a pepper shaker given to us by um, Dole's first wife, Phyllis, uh, who, uh, who became a friend also. And, uh, and I did a film uh, based on the DiMaggio book. We worked together. So I was working yeah, on a film. PBS, yeah, right? Yeah. It was a, the American yep, Experience. The Heroes. Yeah. I saw. I was working on, on that film when, um, when Richard was working on the book. He was a little bit ahead of me. And by the time I got out to San Francisco to uh, talk to DiMaggio's childhood friends, the group, guys he grew up with, uh, uh, Vince Marino and Chicho LaRocca and Frankie Venezia and all these guys. Richard was like a long lost son to them. They all knew Richie, you know, they all wanted to talk about, they wanted to talk about him more than they wanted to talk about Joe DiMaggio. And, uh, and Richard was just an incredible yeah. charmer, you know, and, and, and not because he, you know, was, you know, not because there was nothing uh, ingenuous, disingenuous about it. You know, he was just generally a, a great person, a person you wanted to talk to. And with sources, the deal was um, a lot of journalists and reporters walk in and they're kind of have a way to be know-it-alls, you know, like they know it already. And right. Richard's, yes, Richard's exactly. thing was, you know, I don't know. You know him. You know this person better. Help me understand. Teach me. Yeah, teach teach me. me. Yeah. Right. And he always walked into a project yeah. assuming he knew nothing. And, uh, and, and, uh, and so that was, uh, it was, it was fun to watch, to watch that. He gained trust. He had a, an interesting way of gaining trust. And like you say, getting into people's, um, lives, because if Richard told you something, he stood by it. So if you're talking to him and he says, Hey, this is off the record, then it's off the record. Yeah. You're not going to get burned by Richard Ben Kramer. Right. And, that, and I think that was a really big, um, important part of who he was. And he was such a character. He had the big hat and he had the unfiltered cigarettes that he smoked yeah. he had the wild hair and the beard and, uh, just a really, probably one of the last great newspaper characters out there because it, you know, it kind of got to be dweebs on the us after a while yeah. with their water and their yeah. laptops and their gym memberships and stuff like that. Well, he stood out. I mean, and, you know, when we were working on that book, he'd, he'd come on onto the bus and, uh, you know, people, people knew him, you know, and the, and the candidates knew him and were interested to see him and wanted to have a good laugh. And so, yeah, he, uh, 
he was a one of a kind guy. So I covered, uh, he ended up being Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley, and he was the mayor of Baltimore. I was the Baltimore City Hall reporter, which was a job Richard had at one time yeah. because he came from Baltimore. So it was really cool to have kind of followed in his footsteps. But there's a great, it was what it takes. He was covering Hart. Mel O'Malley was working for Hart. Mel O'Malley was kind of a ground man, field man for Hart. And Richard called up and said, hey, I want to talk to you. And, and knowing it, a reporter, O'Malley hung up. So Richard called back and said, hey, you know, I want to talk to you about the campaign. And O'Malley hung up a second time. So the third time he called, Richard said, you could use a steak dinner, right? Because Richard knew these guys were, they were operating on a shoestring budget. And him, O'Malley, became the greatest friends. And I tell you, the last time I saw Richard before he passed, it was at a state dinner that O'Malley held in his honor. Um, you know, for his years of, uh, of reporting. And uh, when he died, O'Malley said, we have lost one of the great political reporters of our time, which was uh, pretty fascinating. So you have written several books. Tell us a little bit about... Um, Can I tell you one thing about that, that Martin O'Malley story? And it's a, and it's a story that's going to be... Uh, yeah, sure, sure. It's going to redound to my disadvantage. But the truth about that story is, and the way Martin actually tells it, is that uh, uh-huh. I was the one who was calling up you know, a very earnest young guy Ah. saying, hey, Martin, you know, we're doing this book. It's a serious book. We want you to, you know, Richard's a serious reporter. Can you talk to us? And Martin kept hanging up. And finally, Richard turns to me and says, Jesus, just give me the phone, Mr. Mark. And he calls O'Malley and says, hey, you want want a steak dinner? I'll take you to the best steakhouse in Baltimore. So, That's true. Uh, and, and Richard, uh, Richard ran up some expense accounts, man. Yeah, <laughs> he, yeah. he he knew how to live well on the road. Yeah. <laughs> he did. Yeah. He did. Um, as I was saying, you have a couple books of your own. Talk, so talk to us about the Carter family. Uh, well, that was a boy. That was a long time ago. That that book is twenty years old now. But I, it was a book about the original. Uh, uh, sort of original family of country music, A.P. Carter, Sarah Carter, and Mabel Carter. And uh, it's a family that Johnny Cash married into. June Carter Cash was one of the, uh, the, the daughter of, of Mabel. So it was a story sort of about the, the rise of um, er, the early music industry and this very unlikely family that came out of a, a, a place literally called Poor Valley, Virginia, and uh, and rose to you know really international. What made you? What got you interested in that? What yeah? You know what made um, you interested? In I, that? I didn't. I didn't. That? I didn't come into it through the music angle. A friend of mine actually had uh, been working at Life Magazine, and he uh, he had done a big story about them, and thought it was. I, I and I started out to do a. I wanted to do a film about them, but I was just really fascinated uh-huh. by the lives themselves and the extraordinary, you know, as with people like Bob Dole and Gary Hart and Joe Biden, these extraordinary lives, you know, um, the, the distances they traveled in their lives from this very unlikely, you know, soil in America to kind of the, the top of your profession. Those are the, those are the stories that have always, um, attracted me. 
appealed to you. Yeah. So your second book was The Statesman and the Storyteller, which was about John Hay, who was Secretary of State at the time, and Mark Twain. And I'm actually interested in, I didn't realize you did that book, and I'm, I'm going to get it because I'm fascinated with Mark Twain right now. I was watching a documentary that's getting a lot of attention on Val Kilmer. And uh, Val Kilmer lost his voice. And um, it was kind of a, a sad situation because he had started a one-man show Mark Twain that was starting to gain some ground and get some attention and that's when he um, he had the voice troubles but tell us about that book uh, Statesman and the Storyteller is a book about um, kind of the early days of American imperialism and I got the idea to write the book back in the middle of the uh, the sort of morass of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars um, and the question I asked was when was it that this country, the United States of America, got it the idea that it could sort of impose its will uh, for good or ill on uh, on other countries in the world. And that led me back to uh, kind of the turn of the 20th century, the 1890s and 1900, and what happened in the Spanish-American War and in the Philippines. And John Hay ended up being the perfect uh, vehicle to tell that story. And I started out to do kind of a many 10-year biography of his life. And this other character kept popping up, uh, Mark Twain, who, who was kind of a, a gadfly and someone who was a great um, uh, critic of what was happening at the time. And they also happened to be, while not great friends, they were, they were acquaintances from way back and had come from a similar place right on the Mississippi River, the banks of the Mississippi, and uh, were contemporaries. So it it was kind of a nice way to do a dual biography of two really interesting people to, uh, to reveal the politics of the, of the day and the way uh, America sort of first put its toe in the water of imperialism. I really do appreciate you coming on and being with us. Thank you for having me, Jerry, and uh, hope to talk to you again soon. And we will be back next week with another thrilling edition of the Retail Politics Podcast. Until then, always remember, read beyond the headlines. Have a great week. With the front row, award-winning reporter Gerard Shields takes you into the vanishing world of print news to a time when stories were reported, not invented or twisted. Imagine you have press credentials in the front row with Shields throughout his decades-long newspaper career covering political corruption, scandal, and heroics during the critical events of our time. With dozens of Amazon five-star reviews, Shields' latest work, The Front Row, is a passionate study of American journalism while delivering his own invaluable life lessons. The Front Row by Gerard Shields. Available now at Amazon.com.